0: to the Hilliard Beacon Audio Companion. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Smith, and I'm joined this evening by my good friend, Tim Hoffman.
1: Good afternoon. We're trying
0: something different. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And Kevin Corvo. Good afternoon. All right. Very businesslike, like gentlemen. Well done. Uh, boy, it's been quite a whirlwind over these last couple of months as we have uh, spun up a coverage operation to provide election information and reporting and results to the people of Hilliard and I'd say overall uh, now on the other side of those elections that uh, that we had a pretty good run and I mm-hmm. think that I uh, speak for us all when I say we're very proud of the work we did and we're very proud of uh, the efforts of all the candidates to, to put forward a, a good face to the public and uh, those that didn't come out and sit for interviews uh, just because the elections are over now doesn't mean that Opportunity is foreclosed, and I think that ongoing uh, interview series with uh, elected officials is going to be a big part of what we do here uh, as the Hilliard Beacon. So uh, pivoting from that opening statement about the whole operation, uh, let's talk briefly about the actual election results. Yeah. Uh, It was a busy day on Tuesday for me. I was up early as usual keeping track of everything. I knew how everything had mostly played out the night before. I had gone to bed, I think, finally with 90-some-odd percent reporting here locally, and both of the state issues well decided Mm -hmm. by that point. Um, uh, Let's talk briefly about total numbers uh, of voters, and let's talk about uh, who got elected. In the total election results for Hilliard City Council, we have the top three vote-getters— Uh, coming in right at just about 7,000 votes with Emily Cole up top, Cynthia Vermillion underneath that just by a hair at 6,957, Greg Betts, 6,120, Mike Carney on the outside at 5,892, followed by Pete Marsh, 4,922, and JT Eiseldyke uh, at 4,554. So within that uh, framing, you could vote for up to three selections, right? right. But there is an undervote of about 10,000 on average between people that didn't make all the selections possible, right? So of the totals, it looks to me like the biggest disparity stands out in early voting, absentee ballots, and that type of thing, because uh, if you look at the differences, uh, all three elected Uh, Officials, the Democrats up top, Emily Cole, Cynthia Vermillion, and Greg Betts, all performed pretty well in the absentee balloting phase. 1,600 votes plus for Emily Cole, 1,700 votes plus for Cynthia, and 1,500 votes plus for Greg Betts. And then you flip that over to the Republican side of uh, the election slate, and they each uh, were less than 1,000 votes uh, voting ahead of time. So early voting absentee balloting, all that stuff, the whole voting process matters. And you can kind of see a little bit why, at the state level, uh, Republicans have been trying to work against those expanded voting hours and things uh, of that nature, because it is a pretty decisive advantage, at least here locally for Democrats, and it has been traditionally and historically uh, in that way.
1: Yeah, it seems like um, a silly approach to take. If Republicans want to win elections, they're going to have to embrace... Those early voting things—it's—it's it's not the uh, the get out the vote thing is is making a real difference.
0: Yeah, and remains so even despite uh, closing up different precincts and closing up well, not precincts, but closing up different early voting hours. Uh, that's been happening over the course of the last several years as a as a matter of finances and things of that nature. So they they claim but it it is intended to diminish that that vote total, but I guess
1: and it yeah it's it's uh, it seems clear nationwide that um, you need to if you want to win the elections, you have to embrace the expanded uh, voting opportunities and i I think in a couple of
0: those races the difference would have provided the margin so uh day of turnout there was there was pretty Fierce competition between both parties for all six or uh, all three seats, and it looked like uh, in a couple of cases day of turnout favored other candidates, but overall the vote totals were pretty clear. The fairly tight margin between Betts and Carney at the third position, but other than that, in the council races they were pretty, pretty done uh, and pretty clear. Moving over to Norwich Township, uh, Greg Young defeated Les Carrier for Larry Earman's unexpired term, and uh, Young had 5,975 votes, and Les Carrier had 5,275 votes. Uh, Rick Tidd was unopposed, so he got the full measure of votes that chose to register in that case. Again, you know you, that's where a lot of that undervoting comes in. You see a big number for Tidd, but it's because there was no... Uh, no opposition line, and a lot of people just go ahead and click that for completeness uh, in the voting booth, and they they don't mind throwing that number in there. Uh, Interestingly, when you move to the fiscal officer race, that was the tightest race in the election here locally. It was between James Friel and Omar Tarazi, separated by a bare 124 votes. Tarazi, Friel
2: led that until the Yeah, until the, the very evening.
0: final uh, two precincts <clears throat> reporting, I think. The very final two precincts reporting, Friel was up by less than 100. But uh, just to mention the numbers, uh, Terazi received 5,995 votes. Friel received 5,871 votes. And these are all, according to final Franklin County Board of Elections, unofficial, unofficial results. final results. Yeah.
2: There'll be a recount in that. Um, I'm pretty sure that falls within the automatic Recount yeah, that's very, protocol that's that's very the, close. that the Franklin County I had does. it
0: from some people that I know that uh, there is some still mail-in balloting to actually be counted. Provisional ballots yeah, ball- are all and stuff in? stuff like okay. that, so that all needs to be tabulated as well. Um, in the Hilliard uh, City Schools board race, uh, Brian Perry was the top vote getter. He pulled in 16,350 votes. Again, that's taking in votes throughout the whole school district. Much larger than the city limit. Bigger number of voters eligible. Kelly Arnold uh, achieved the second seat with 14,768 votes. Caitlin Master, 12,319 on the outside. And uh, Nadia Long, the incumbent, actually, low vote getter, 9,200 votes according to final unofficial results. And then in Brown Township... Uh, incumbent, uh, trustee Pam Sayer defeated Michael Helderman by a total of 879 votes to 630 and writing candidate, Michelle Stayrook received 89 votes. And, uh, yeah. So as we go through some of the other, uh, graphic representations that I pulled together for this article, it was interesting to see, oh, and Becky Kent won Brown Township fiscal officer unopposed. I didn't mention that race. Um, uh, but since it wasn't one, uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah. So, guys, let's ask Hmm. uh, overall, what were some of your takeaways from working on this election cycle as the Hilliard Beacon? What were some of your takeaways from sitting down with all these candidates and asking them, you know, sometimes an hour's worth of questions about what they saw, what they were assessing, what they believed to be some of the more, uh, primary issues driving their campaigns and, and the needs of the city. What, what did you take
1: away from this cycle, Tim? I feel like, uh, due to the work that we put in, um, people who were tuned into what we did here probably showed up more prepared for this election, local election, than um, than has really been possible in the past. And that might be me, uh, shining my own apple and, uh, <laughs> You know, you know, this is the work that I've been working on. So obviously, it's right in front of me. Um, but I feel like uh, the work that we've been doing is of a different focus and scope than what has been available to folks. I agree. Before, and I feel the
2: podcast is much more information than has been presented or made available to voters locally, right? I
1: believe. And so I, I am grateful that we have you here, Kevin, to work with us um, with your uh, lengthy tenure as a local journalist. You know, it's been sort of up to you for uh, preceding elections to get this kind of information to people and the format of the local newspaper did not have room for the kind of coverage that we've been able to do. Yeah, do that's little, right. Does that, that seem, does that seem accurate? It does. I mean, 20,
2: 20 years ago, there was more in print. We would, there was question and answer sessions, that, or, uh, publications we would print where it was written out, question answer, question answer, a printed format of what we executed in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And that gradually, for both staffing reasons and for both – uh, time and space, uh, the the coverage of what candidates thought um, was less. There was less information available, I think, mm. uh, gradually over the years leading up to the closure when it came to um, information about candidates, uh, except for the candidates' nights that the chamber sponsored uh, there was relatively uh, – that was the only thing that resembled the information we do in a podcast would have been the the Q&As that, that were done once by the chamber, and there were probably some other candidates, one-off candidate, candidate nights that were held. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think our podcast was probably the first opportunity I can think of where every candidate across all the elections um, had an opportunity to come in here and uh, speak in a pretty – uh, in whatever setting in whatever time we allowed them, I think any one candidate spoke more, I think than any other venue sure or opportunity
0: it was an expand an expanded way of looking at things for sure mm-hmm. relative to what was able to be executed in this week mm-hmm. and able to be pulled together uh in those in those formats and we've talked about this mm-hmm. a little bit, Kevin. you have some conversations with an old friend of yours talking about the the future and path and history of journalism and i don't want to say that obviously what we've done is not on par with new york times reporting <laughs> or the ability to fact check or the ability to you know run people out for long weeks long assignments or things like that but what it what it is is a depth of coverage and an an allowance of focus and time and persistence over time that we made at our mission here for those weeks and near months to really provide that. So no matter at what point people found those election series, they were able to come back to other installments of that. If they didn't feel like listening to the podcast, we had provided a lot of written summary material of those interviews so that people could have some level of takeaway from what was said, no matter how how deeply they were willing to to really engage with those. Uh, posts and and those bits of material. So I think that points to me that our mission of that recurring engagement, that ongoing engagement has uh, value. Hmm. We had subscriber increases. We had paid subscriber increases. We had a lot of uh, interactivity on various social media that we hadn't really pushed for before to try to get more in front of the folks. Hmm. And I think, by and large, we were fairly successful in that. And Kevin, you kind of described some of your takeaways from this election cycle, but maybe more—maybe um, more—what some of your takeaways were from interviewing this crop of candidates. Like, what were, what are some of your, um, what are some of your insights into this group of folks that have come through in this cycle that are looking to work for the city and work for the public mm-hmm. for the next several years?
2: Well, the comprehensive plan was something that was clear that there were two positions to be had on that, mm-hmm. and uh, the results of the election kind of bared out where at least those who voted were aligned. Um, so, right, um, three Democrats elected one, two, three. Uh, I might, I don't know if the Board of Elections has how far back their records go, but in January there'll be four Democrat candidates. I'm sorry, four. Democrat members of Hillary city council. Mm -hmm. That'll be a majority that has not happened since at least before 1970. Okay. Um, I I mean, to put it in perspective, Cynthia Vermillion was, was the first Democrat in 2019, four Mm -hmm. years ago, Mm -hmm. Cynthia was the first Democrat elected the city council in 25 years. Right. Two years later, Tina Catone is on city council. Mm -hmm. Two years after that, Two other Democrats are put on city council. right? So there was never a Democrat majority on city council going back to when Roger Reynolds first became mayor. Okay. That's 1975. Right. Um, I did ask Roger. He was pretty confident. I mean, you know, he said it doesn't go back before 1970. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the city became—Hillary became a city in 1960— Right. So we're gonna to have to go back to a village council, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when the village council Even was ever established. I don't party know party designations. When did uh, we have wigs? Well, always? when did we? <laughs> 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 it might go that far back. Uh, um, I I don't know for absolute certain if there was a village council. So when Hillary became a city, by the virtue of the 1960 census, they'd have had a city council. Right. Um, I think there were party designations. From the start so that would go back to 1960 but unless there was if there was a Democrat I don't know for sure but maybe there was a Democrat majority in the 1960s but going back to 1970 there's not been a Democrat majority so that certainly I I, that's a big change and and I think I think indicative uh, I didn't think it might happen quite that quickly and I'm a, I'm a little surprised that Pete Marsh lagged as far behind as he did. I was very surprised. By um, that also. I'm I'm kind of surprised Nadia Long was the least vote getter. So clearly those who voted um, had a position on the comprehensive plan and the Save Hilliard thing. Uh, I I don't think at least those that voted didn't see a need to save Hilliard. It would seem. I well, mean, less wasn't successful in the
1: what we Norwich me- Township race. Right. What we haven't mentioned yet, which I think was a very major uh, factor in this election, were issues one and two. Mm. Where we have issue one, which is the uh, mm. abortion rights uh, amendment to the amendment. Ohio Constitution, and issue two, which was the legalization of uh rec- cannabis. recreational cannabis for Ohio weed the weed whatever I didn't
2: read the article what Afro man weighed in on the Ohio <laughs> law I can I, guess I d- didn't read yet what he said I just got the push on my phone Afro man weighs in on
1: so um these issues seem to me to be driving people uh, passionately to the polls who are more inclined to pull the lever for Democrats across the board than they would be Republicans. Mm -hmm. And I think that was probably...
0: Off your election uh, as well.
1: Yeah, off your election. I think if it was a presidential, you know, it'll be interesting to see a year from now. uh, You know, I'm not sure what local races there will be, but I think there will be a... a a lively and interesting uh analysis to be done yeah when we've got uh uh some people who are more uh you know driven by presidential candidates to go to the polls Mm. Um, with the national politics
0: playing more strongly in the background at the presidential level you're saying it might be a different character or or cycle
1: right because i think if you have a situation and I, i and i don't and I do not want to dwell on national politics here. Sure, no, of course, um, because it's gross. Um, but <laughs> but it, it is an influence, and it does it,
0: it does influence a lot of things. Because, as you say, it influences number one the turnout and on right. different things. But also at the national level, Kevin intimated that it's a pretty pretty significant and quick sea change to flip to so many Democrats on this local city council, and it all started back around 2016. And there are certain schisms that have taken place that we are seeing play out in local politics. And I believe it's Mm -hmm. illustrated most strongly in that Pete Marsh candidacy. Pete Marsh was left off of Save Hilliard uh, slate materials, Save Hilliard meetings, all these other things, as was Nadia Long. As traditional Republican candidates, you don't really see that kind of thin slicing at the local level. Yeah. And what happens is they still draw Republican votes – but they don't draw the same volume. And then people wonder why those Republicans aren't featured on the materials. And it leads to a lot of uh, second guessing. It leads to a not unified
1: front. And I think you see the results of that. Yeah. And I was surprised. And, you know, unfortunately, we didn't get to sit down with Mike Carney. Mm. Um, but to see him as the top vote getter, even over Pete Marsh, who has a you know, a good record and a A real track record and a sterling reputation, um, you know, bipartisanly. Uh, so it's like, all right, where it is. Uh, it's interesting to see, especially with, you know, there were, there's recent controversy around Mike Carney, uh,
0: yeah, it stirred up on Facebook and then also obviously in, uh, real life. But a lot of people have commented and mentioned in the dispatch that they weren't trying to take the view that it was an employment issue. Um, and I think that beyond and not speaking, descending into the social media of it,
1: and not speaking into that is like, all right, to what, to what can we attribute his, you know, being at top of the Republican? Oh,
0: I have it, I do, Was a million it, percent. You know,
1: I know that he's very active in his church, and I wonder if that, you know, that can be a motivator for uh, election turnout. Well, I think um, that's a big deal. I think he's his signs were good looking.
0: In the schools, and if you look here, I have the Franklin County Board of Elections city map pulled Mm -hmm. up, and right here is Cemetery Road running across the city, the center of the city. Yes, here's the Dublin Road corridor where the SPOC situation has taken place. So, for city council, Mike Kearney was the closest with West Carriers. Objectives as far as neighborly, reasonable, sociable, all those kind of things as far sure. as development goals are concerned. And that ran very strongly, as you know, right along Norwich Street mm-hmm. and along Cemetery Road because yeah. of the big Save Hilliard sign, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then over on Dublin Road in the uh, Sayoto Property Owners Collective kind of enclave, mm-hmm. he pulled down wins there, too, because he had a lot of signage. and He had a lot of voters there that were unified on that message. Um I, I don't know where they were for Isildyke or for um, you know Caitlin Master and, and those kind of considerations because this is not what's shown here on this particular heat map. Right. But you can see that Hilliard is a lot bigger than those areas. Right. And while running strong in those areas is, is key, I think it points to uh, one of the fundamental and more direct weaknesses of the whole Save Hilliard campaign is that it was too tightly focused on old Hilliard. Uh, the whole thing is too tightly focused on Old Hilliard. I found that that was kind of a recurring theme in people talking about it because that's where the spending has been in the preceding eras of city government. They've been shaping that up, buying property, transforming the public spaces, and doing all those things. But running hot in those smaller areas, Old Hilliard is less than 1% of the overall land mass of the city. Uh, You know, it... It, it's not enough. Right. It's not enough. Maybe didn't speak to a broad enough set of concerns or maybe spoke to too narrow a set of concerns from the larger populace. And I think that's reflected in uh, Cynthia and Emily <coughs> turning out large vote totals in all the surrounding precincts hmm. and pulling all those down. So I I, I don't know uh, beyond those takeaways into how it actually played out. Um, is, does anybody else have anything maybe about... Uh, Any particular interviews in the township sector or or anything
1: like that? Or you want to talk some more about city stuff? I actually want to uh, compare this election, which obviously we've all been heavily involved with, with the last election that you and I were very heavily involved with, which was 2019 when you were running.
0: Mm. Same kind of circumstances? Off year?
1: Well, that's the last time I was looking at the total number of votes cast for city council members. And it seems to me like they were not... In the multiple thousands, I think. I think it was. Was it? I, just, I could have a faulty memory, I but say I think I had seven thousand votes. So you were in seven, and I know you were like two hundred away from having a seat,
0: right? And that's the same kind of dynamic that you see between that Kearney Betts position, right? And it's just merely um, volume turnout in in certain in certain areas, and so I,
1: Emily had the most. Votes. She had what? How many did she pull in? Seven. Okay, Seven thousand. All right. So I was I was uh, a faulty memory. I was thinking that uh, there were not thousands and, you know, that many thousands of votes cast back before. So anyway, never mind that. I think largely turnout has been up across
0: the state as people have been kind of in these larger push poll dynamics and arguments that we have seen play out there's a lot of frustration with the level of gerrymandering that's happened at the state level mm-hmm. making people feel like right down here local politics is the only place that you can be actionable right. and be and be functional in a democratic way right now in this state so uh i look forward to covering more of these races mm-hmm. uh, going forward i look forward to meeting more of these candidates and i don't think it's necessarily about being able to put them down on the record and hold anybody accountable. But it is about creating like this expectation that we are not a passive audience of people that are in this city that are just looking for the aftermath. Right. We are in this because I perceive that there is a significant absence of citizen resident involvement at stages where it can really matter, where it can really be, a a transformative portion of the overall city picture. Uh, Some of the candidates have talked about neighborhood planning groups. I'm very much in favor of that because it takes these wards, makes them real for the people that live in them as a unit of political expression, Mm -hmm. as a unit of involvement in their local community and their ability to interact in ways where they can feel a true part of this process at the earliest stages, to not have some agency. Yeah. To not in be, anything, to not be called into uh, reactive service when a development is announced, but rather to be preparing ahead of time with your friends and neighbors in community and telling those bulldozers exactly where you want them to go to give you the kind of city you want to live in. Uh, I hope that's a development that comes out of this and and oncoming uh, election cycles. Yeah, I think
1: that's something we're all working working hard to do.
0: Turning uh, briefly to Brown Township and Norwich Township, uh, as we need to kind of take our first steps after election into ongoing issues, uh, the fire services contract that came up in every issue, Mm -hmm. fire and emergency services contract, that came up in every interview, I should say, um, with those candidates, is playing out uh, again in the news cycle. And Kevin, you're you're going to mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about the latest dispatches from those uh, those negotiations as they are ongoing. Uh,
2: yes, uh, and there's still some more things that uh, I want to find out about. This uh, Brown Township and Norwich Township aren't quite seeing the same thing, so I am. I want to be careful in not speaking for either one of them right. <laughs> in sure. terms the of what they're not agreeing you. on. But, so that's uh, a little more formal than— Yes, they are. And I'm going to read from those. And this is what I'll build into some written coverage uh, that you'll see posted here in the next few days. Uh, Nor- Norwich Township is to meet uh, November 14th. They'll meet Tuesday, November 14th. Uh, number one on their agenda is discussion of the Brown Township contract and steps moving forward. Um, In terms of the press releases, uh, Brown Township trustee Joe Martin uh, did issue a press release uh, Tuesday morning, uh, two days ago, Um, I guess actually on election day, election morning, uh, he issued a press release. Uh, This press release, I have not seen anything anywhere else yet, but this went to all three TV networks um, as well as to uh, Gannett um, and his uh, press release indicates and says the Brown Township trustees fear for the future of its partnership with Norwich Township is more uncertain than ever. Given this unfortunate situation, Brown Township must explore a range of options regarding fire and EMS protection for its residents, including new partnerships. He does not identify those, and I don't know where else Brown Township would partner, but... That's a press release he sent, um, listing himself and also their attorney um, as contacts. After receiving that, I reached out to Norwich Township and said, okay, what's going on, basically? And uh, Chief David Baird of Norwich Township, likewise, um, issued a response, a written response. And generally speaking, we don't understand why Brown Township feels this way. So uh, that's kind of where it lies, or just not seeing the... Same thing. Uh, Pam Serra was in here before to speak to us, so I know it's rooted somewhat in the amount of money that Brown Township w- wants to withhold from its fire levy, um, as it sees fit for needing for any number of things.
0: That reserve
1: that they're they've right. talked about, okay, right. right for contingency planning and.
2: Uh, for maintenance and upkeep, uh, they has they did abatement asbestos, asbestos abatement. Yes. Okay, uh, but Brown mold. Township mold I think. mold Sorry. mold. Right. Um, uh, Brown Township owns uh, Station 82. 82 out on Robertson-Walker um, Walker Road. Uh, so they want money to uh, set aside or to keep back uh, to take care of that building. And that's an the amount they want to hold back. Um, it's also an amount they want back, I suppose, should they need to go uh, contract with a different agency for fire and EMS. Um, the levy, uh, other funds in the levy will pay for the... Salary and for the fire and EMS service that Norwich provides to Brown Township. Uh, the contract does require that Norwich give 12 months notice to Brown Township, and that's what we're up against. That's what they're up against. Uh, if Norwich is not to provide fire and EMS service to Brown Township, they would be notifying Brown Township of that by the end of the year. So that's seven because weeks
0: away. When you get into that 12 12- Months it's staffing it's people would be probably laid off if they didn't have to provide coverage to that area anymore hmm. so there's there's big potential here uh It came up in one of those pieces that there have been over ten back and forth kind of like here's the attorneys. offer here's the counter offer here's the offer here's the counter right. offer I think to me this cries out for uh you know that collaborative government that everybody mentioned. Uh, in this process, as these townships and as uh, city and schools need to and uh, endeavor to hold hands more closely on a lot of these decision-making processes, I think it would benefit uh, everybody involved, the residents especially, for City of Hilliard uh, new newly elected council people to say where where are we on this and how can we help achieve a common operating picture so that we can move forward because. In doing some of this, uh, pulling together these articles and posting things up on the Substack, Kevin gives me the piece, and I say, okay, let's look for some of the history on this. Right. And I start going back, and there's articles in the dispatch from early 2000s and things of this nature. It's just kind of an ongoing haggling point. Right. So I wonder— of,
1: uh, what kind of—you know, we're talking about council's involvement in this. Do they have—I mean— what kind of? I guess. Because, well, they don't really. You know. But
0: what I'm suggesting is that there's there's a collaborative element between the services that Norwich Fire Department provides to the city of Hilliard, right, and that provides to Norwich Township, which also is very much part of, in a lot of respects, the city of Hilliard. And I think that these kind of negotiations benefit from more level-headed people. Uh, I'm not saying the people that are already involved. I'm just saying more of them. Uh, to get in on this kind of discussion, bring right. it up, talk about what some of this honest sticking points are and maybe where some of this uh, collaboration can happen. I don't think there's anything that says um, that there can't be certain sharing elements between these local governments and local organizational uh, efforts to create a more um, settled situation, a more, well, a how- more reserved situation.
1: It's been, what, 25 years that Norwich has provided fire and EMS for Brown Township, something like that? I think well, so. Station
2: 82 opened in 1999.
1: Okay. So, uh, I don't feel like anything drastic has changed over the last year or so.
2: Brown might have provided service before that.
1: Mm, their own? Like a small...
0: Maybe uh, that could be something. we I'm could sorry, have Norwich might have provided
2: for Brown Township even prior to Station 82 opening. I'd have to.
1: Oh, right. I'd have to. It seems to me like maybe that. bringing in a disinterested mediator party. We right. may be coming. Maybe it comes to that. Maybe that makes it a lot easier. I don't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, and as we talked about with Pam, it's long terms
0: out there, long memories, mm-hmm. and and sometimes those things need to be um you know broken up a little bit and, and refreshed and relationships need to be reappraised and bringing in a third party or bringing in other uh interested council people that are interested in resident service provision that can't be a bad thing to try
1: to get to a, a more settled situation right let's do it before someone is literally on fire yeah. chief
2: chief baird responded uh just to read what his response was go ahead um, please this email only went to me, but it well could have been sent elsewhere. Uh, the, the press release Joe Martin issued went lots of other places as well, the three TV networks and the Gannett. Uh, Chief Baird responded, uh, Norwich Township was recently surprised by comments from a Brown Township trustee to the press release that negotiations for a new fire and EMS services contract have stopped. That is simply not true. And uh, he summarizes what's happened and uh, concludes, Norwich remains, as it always has throughout this process, diligent in attempting to find agreement that makes sense for both communities. Norwich has faithfully provided fire and EMS services to Brown Township's residents for more than a quarter of a century. So that's the time reference. It would seem real close to 25 years. Norwich has made no plans to stop providing these services and is hopeful to continue offering these services to Brown Township for many years to come.
0: The cool thing about firefighters is, you know, they just want to fight fires. Yeah, God <laughs> not, bless them. You know, the 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 stake the stake in the game is uh, just that, and they want to provide service. I think it's about money. I think it's about taking care of people that probably deserve raises. I think it's probably about better facilities. It's it's about money, and uh, that has to be negotiated. It can't be ignored, but. Uh, hopefully, uh, as we get into this newly elected cycle, people will take these, uh, new roles and say, okay, we've settled that issue. Now it's time to settle this issue and, uh, tackle it with the plum that is necessary. But I think to wrap up this, uh, dispatch from the Hilliard beacon audio companion, we will throw to an interview and I'm going to give Kevin a chance to preview it a little bit here that uh, he conducted uh, in honor of Veterans Day. And, Kevin, if you wanted to give us a little bit of that uh, background info before we toss to that interview, that would be awesome. Thank you, sir.
2: Thank you, Jordan. Uh, the Grand Marshal of the parade in Hilliard uh, Sunday uh, this past weekend, it was a VFW, and American Legion parade. The Grand Marshal was Ed Seneff. Um He's a resident of the Ashford of Ashford at Sturbridge, 96 years old. And uh, he was drafted and uh, served in the U.S. Army in the waning months of World War II. Uh, he was uh, worked in Germany uh, just two months after VE Day. And I took the opportunity, or rather he accepted uh, my offer to interview him. Uh, so uh, this podcast will probably drop tomorrow, and it is uh, tied to Veterans Day, in honor of Veterans Day, and our America's Veterans uh, I hope perhaps to interview some other veterans in the future and maybe uh, make that a series so um but uh he spoke about his uh time in both the u s army he served in the air national guard uh after korea. that for several years no not um not korea um but in the in the, in the air national guard i think he w- he was out of the service by nineteen fifty or fifty one
0: gotcha well, you start there. Uh, you definitely start with the longest tenured in town, and then we'll see. We'll <laughs> see who else wants to turn up to to share some stories and to share some experiences with Kevin on that front. Uh, and I think that's where we'll leave it for today, Tim. I'm sorry to provide you with a little bit of editing this morning. I, or, I mean, on this es- episode, I do apologize.
1: But I believe I'll I'll be okay.
0: Yeah, you're pretty sharp over there. But uh, uh, everyone out there in uh, Hilliard land and associated jurisdictions. We have been the Hilliard Beacon, and uh, we will continue to do that. We would definitely appreciate your support in the form of uh, likes, sharing these articles and podcasts to your friends and neighbors. And if you can, uh, subscribe to us on Substack at the Hilliard Beacon and support us materially in our efforts to uh, continue Kevin's 25-year reporting career here in Hilliard and to pr- continue to bring you uh, some of the best information that we can on local goings-on and happenings here in Uh, in your town as well as ours. So until next time, thank you very much, and we will see you on the flip-flop. Goodbye.
3: Good (laughs) evening.
2: Well, listeners, welcome to a special podcast of the Hilliard Beacon. I'm your host, Kevin Corvo, and I am here at the Ashford at Sturbridge with Ed Seneff. Ed Siniff is a World War II veteran, and he was Grand Marshal of the parade in Hilliard on Sunday, November 5th, the parade of the American Legion and VFW. Ed was the Grand Marshal, and I wanted to speak a little more with him about his time in the Army during World War II. And he is here with me this afternoon. And we are also joined by his niece, Karen Castle. Um, the podcast should drop uh, just in advance of Veterans Day on November 11th. And that was the purpose of this podcast. Uh, Veterans Day is November 11th and uh, ties to Armistice Day, uh, which ended World War I, known, the, known as the Great War then, on the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th year. Uh, Ed's father, Ralph, uh, served in World War I. Uh, uh, and uh, Ed's brother, Paul, is a U.S. Coast Guard veteran. Uh, Paul's son, Gary, served in the uh, United States Air Force. So there is uh, a record of service in the Senate family. So uh, Ed uh, finished um, basic training at Camp Fannin in Texas and then uh, began his service in the Army uh, over in Europe. So with that introduction, Um, Ed, tell us a little bit about your experience at Camp Fannin, if you'd like, uh, and then uh, tell us how you got from Camp Fannin and
3: began serving um, in the Army. Well, I don't know exactly how long I was at Camp Fannin, but that was basic training. And something interesting about that is after I was out of the service, I was having lunch and the lady sitting beside me, I found out, was from where Camp Fanon had been, mm-hmm. and she was telling me, you would never know that Camp Fanon was ever there. That's <laughs> So uh, when I left Camp Fanon, that was a delay in route to home for two weeks, mm-hmm. and from there I- Went to New York and boarded the ship, and uh, we we were mid-ocean, Christmas Day forty-five, and we landed at La Havre, France, New Year's Day forty-six. Okay, and two weeks later, I was in Berlin. Okay, and was assigned. Eventually, where I was was at the quartermaster company, it was a laundry company. and I was uh, well, forget that. Uh, we had a thousand Germans in the laundry company, did all the laundry for all the troops in Berlin, and five hundred been the dark community plant. And one thing that happened was uh, the dry cleaning plant. They found, I think, it was a fifty-dollar bill, something of that Wow. <laughs> okay, little things like that you remember. Mm-hmm. So that's about it on on the laundry laundry company. But another GI gave me a, a forty-five. And uh, when I came home, I had it in my laundry bag or my uh, duffel bag. And I was asked, as it was being processed, do you, do you have anything in there that you shouldn't have in there? <laughs> and I should have said no. And I said yes, and I I lost the gun. <laughs> However... I got the forty five from the when called no he got it from where
4: Paul Pri and Marber's husband,
3: yeah yeah he he had a lot of things in the basement there right and Daddy got that gun, and I, I bought it from Paul, so I did end up with a, a forty-five. And now Paul Seneff has it. I gave it to Paul Seneff, and he, he has that and a sword that I gave him. He has it mounted in a case that you can, uh, the glass you can see in.
4: Paul is named after my father. That's who he's speaking at. Right.
2: What do you remember of the um, condition of the city, the condition of Berlin? Uh, what can you
3: remember about the, the condition uh, of the city when you was asked you? It was very bad. It was very bad. They were hungry. The um, ladies, were picking up bricks out of the street mm-hmm. and stacking them up at the curb. And uh, well, it. the fact that they were not well fed, they didn't have much food to eat, it's, it was very difficult for the German people at that time.
2: Your rank was tech sergeant
3: in the in the army, right? I was a tech sergeant. Yes. What did what did what were that, your duties and responsibilities? Not a very good description of my rank, okay. But that's the idea.
2: What what were your responsibilities and duties? Um, what were your responsibilities as tech sergeant?
3: Yeah. Well, I was. Uh, See, my memory is bad about them putting things together. They can't do it.
2: <laughs> you were in Berlin from in early nineteen forty six then. So this was at the Yeah,
3: forty six. That was
2: after the war ended or the fighting ended.
3: Well, I qualify as a uh, a World War II veteran. World War II veteran, because I wouldn't in in France and and Germany and so forth, I wouldn't qualify as a, a veteran. However, the war in Japan was still going on. They hadn't dropped the bombs yet. And I understand. That's how I qualify as a veteran. As a World War II veteran? Yes. Yes,
2: okay. As you're a veteran. Uh, how much time did you spend in Berlin? Were, were you anywhere else in Europe, or did, did you spend the balance
3: of your service? I think it was a little less than a year that I spent in, in Europe. Um. I have some notes here about
2: your service at service uh, from July of 1945 until, um, 21st of. Oh, I'm shy. Until, until 1946. Yes. What month was that? 1946. Like it's November. I can't make November 21st, 1946. Now, after your time in the, um, Army, uh, you joined the Air National Guard, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Um, and had served in the Air National Guard um, 1949
3: to 1952. What did you do in the years? The when I was in the Air National Guard, I oh, called up to active duty. Okay. So then, that's when I was in South Carolina. Right. Saw Air Force Base in South Carolina.
2: Yeah. What What can you do? Uh, Tell us about your time at Shaw Air Force Base.
3: Shut up that pit. I can't tell you that thing about I understand. being
2: there. When you were asked about uh, being uh, Grand Marshal, um, who um, uh, how had that come about? To be Grand Marshal at the parade here this year. Yeah, what, what do you want I Did, to did, uh, did the, someone from the city call and ask you, the American Legion? Who called to ask you about becoming the grand marshal? How'd you become grand marshal?
3: You know, I I don't know. They came to me and said, "You're going to be the grand marshal." <laughs> go go in there and get that heavy thing to see him. See, okay.
2: Um, do you remember anything about um, your? father anything he told you about his about his service in world war one
3: well he said that in the final push yeah that his his uh artillery he and about three other guys had that station And then there were many more. Mm -hmm. And he said the ground shook (laughs) when they fired all of them. And that's about all the time.
2: I want to share that Ed is a graduate of West High School, so you grew up here in Columbus, right? You grew up in Columbus, West High School? You went to West High School? I went to West, yes. Okay. Um, what can you remember about, where did you grow up in Columbus? What, uh, the, the, West side, I, I, I suppose. What, what, do you remember or what can you share about Columbus in the 1940s? Well, I was living with, with my mother
3: and father on Bridge Road. Okay, Bridge Road. No, mm-hmm. no, wait.
4: Rexia and Muhammadu
3: just let me do is it please nineteen forty well i uh, did you say nineteen forty in the nineteen forties uh the,
2: i i was asking about just in history of the city maybe
3: what but what, what how how you ever things okay right, you said at that, that time rich M. avenue and yeah. They and well, that's 1940. How long they were there? We went to Briggs Room. They moved from, I was living with them. And we moved to Briggs Room, yeah. 3360 Briggs Room, yeah. And yeah, I became. I to find some other place to, where I could be on my own. Okay. And I rented a place in Woodbrook Condominiums. At that time when I moved in there, <clears throat> it was all rental. And the unit that I lived in the unit that i lived in the, I can't remember the the number of it but anyway there came a time when they decided they were going to sell all these rentals and i got a very good price to buy the one that i was living in okay and and everybody else was buying theirs. So now it's a condominium.
2: Where did you work after all your time in the army and the Air National Guard? Where did I work well, at, after after the National
3: Guard? After the Air National Guard.
4: He had so many jobs, I couldn't keep up with every place. He Karen, tell us a few about him. Well, he told me that downtown Lazarus, when they put the escalators in, he helped build those.
3: Yeah, that's one of the jobs I had. Mm-hmm. What
2: do you remember other things about your uncle Eddie and
3: his
4: uh, well, time in the Army? And, well, um, a story he told me was he drove a Jeep. He, he was the Jeep driver for. Was it the captain, or you, didn't you drive a jeep? When you were in the service, you drove a jeep. Well, yeah,
3: There more occasions when I did.
4: Yeah, and he told me that when he got out of the service, he automatically had a driver's license. He never had to go through the testing like they do now.
3: No, I, I never... <laughs> I I don't know how that was. I went into the place and got a license to drive.
4: And that was it. He was a veteran. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see what else. Um, Like I said, he works so many different places. Um, As far as me personally, um, my father Tell us a little bit about
2: your family and, okay. and the military service, not only Eddie, but Ed and the Rustic.
4: Well, my brother, let me go into the one that went in the Air Force, Gary, he was born in 1942. So my father didn't have much time with him because he was overseas, well, he went overseas, but he was in the service. So my mother and uh, some other relatives all lived together, they were women. So my brother was kind of raised by women. And then my grandparents, Ralph and Vera Senoff, Ed's parents, he was with them a lot. So he, he's got some good stories from those earlier years. I was born 48. So it was kind of like if there wasn't a war, I would have probably been born sooner. <laughs>
3: Okay, one of the jobs that I had was a feeder operator on a two-color press. Okay. That's the job I had for about five years, five, six years. Sir?
2: Do you remember, he um, went on Honor Flight. Did you go on Honor Flight with him? Yeah. No. I'll honor Flight. Uh, Ed went on Honor Flight, uh, May 7th, 2011. Do you remember going to Washington? C- can you tell us about the trip to our Flight?
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. Right there. Okay, that's that's the one. This is a different.
4: Okay, He's taken in Washington D.C. I'll write about that picture. I want to share with listeners. Ed
2: is ninety-six years old. And I don't think there's many World War II veterans um, that remain today. And that's why it was important to me to um, ask to interview you and have you share a little bit about um, your experience in
3: Germany and in World War II. Um, You have the information about my American Legion, 77 years. Tell us. 77 years in the American Legion Post, whatever post is that?
4: 532, it was the 532, and Gary said that you are the oldest member as of right now. 77 years. Yeah, and he's the oldest member. Was that an honor? Yes. Is, is there anything else you'd well, had us to... Can I mention some of that? Yes, please. By personal. Mm-hmm. Um, my father had passed away young, so our family it was pretty close. And this man, my uncle, he kind of replaced my father. And um, I...
3: He I, was 57 years old when he died.
4: 56, I think. But But he... He was wonderful, I love my dad. But when I got older, as far as politics, as far as sports, as far as learning things as you grow as an adult, I learned from my uncle. And uh, he taught me so much. He said, um, told me a story that he showed me how to bowl, and he noticed the way I was bowling, and he corrected that mistake. And uh, this was kind of a joke, but he took me to, I think it was the Neil House when Elizabeth Taylor was uh, married to Senator Warner. And uh, so I got to go there and we sat at a dinner. And um, it, was, it was something that uh, at the time, it was, it was great. It was Republicans, you know, but as I look back now, it was quite an honor for me to be at that dinner table. So I have a lot of good memories of him as if he was raised me himself. Okay. He's got something to show you.
2: Depending on the
4: months that Ed was
2: born, he, I think he was 18 years old when he was drafted in 1945,
4: right? He was born in 1927.
2: Okay, then indeed. I've been handed uh, Ed is a member of the Don TL Unit Five Thirty Two of the American Legion on Jiller, uh, Kareem War Ed, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to uh, share? Have to have to tell us. I just that's that's why I'm here to to share. to share, like to share okay. your story with anybody who uh, listens to this podcast. I got that employment all written down somewhere, right down out the word. Oh, I have it. Um, um, I I can write the dates in with the with with the story that goes with it. In the U.S. I Army from move. July 1945 to November of 1946, uh, the U.S. Air Force, uh, November 1951 to December 1952, and the Air National Guard um, as well through December 1952. Thank you for uh, <laughs> taking the time to talk to me, Karen. At anything
3: else that we? I wish I could.
2: Oh, we did perfectly fine here, uh, and I want to thank you. Uh, my father served in the U.S. Navy um, uh, during Vietnam. Uh, I don't know. I don't know many, much of his storyline. He uh, died in 1980 when I was 10 years old, so I don't know a lot. And uh, and he didn't talk about it much. My mom tells me um, as well. Um, I have a uh, first cousin that served in the U.S. Marines. Uh, my uncle on my mom's side served in the Air Force. Uh, so there's some relatives in my family that that served. Uh, Another cousin was in the Navy, and I I can make that covers up So many stories there, too. Uh, There are, uh, and through my career in journalism, uh, which uh, was at Northwest News and earlier this week um, for almost 30 years, uh, I always did take an effort to write stories about Armistice Day, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. Uh, so and that's why um, I asked Ed to... Um, and talk a little bit about um, his time in the army, hmm. and this might become other podcasts I do in the future uh, on, on, other, on other veterans and to share to share their stories.
4: But well, something that I realize now as I'm older too is always, always tell them thank you for your service, and I and that's said a lot now, and it should be said more.
3: That's my dad, Ralph Marion. That's his brother, my uncle. That, there's a lot of story to tell about him. That's me, that's Gary, that's Paul, my brother. That's Gary, and that's his son, Kim. And Kim is deceased.
2: Yes. This is a picture from June, 1960. And uh, Ed described most of the people I mentioned at the start of the podcast um, who have, uh, who have uh, served our military and our country um, in the, the Senna family. All right. Um, thank you, Ed, for your time today and, and, and your service to your country you. as well. Um, and that's why I did this podcast. So uh, on behalf of myself, Kevin Corvo, and my partners, uh, George and Smith and Tim Hoffman, Uh, Who are not here um, today for this podcast, but um, Ed was nice enough to invite me here to make this recording, and then we'll make this available in the studio um, um, in our podcast series in advance of Veterans Day on November 11th. So uh, please remember also to thank the veterans you know um, uh, for their service to our country. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Ed.
1: I tell you guys, one time, it was after ComFest. It was the one time I went to ComFest. And, I, you know, I got my fill. This is over 20 years ago. We went afterward uh, to see Tony Monica was playing at the 501 Jazz Bar. And so we went and we're hanging out. And some drunk guy, maybe in his 50s or 60s, was like, oh, I can sing to this. And, like, somehow managed to get a hold of the microphone while Tony Monaco and the guys were playing a blues. And the first thing he's out of his mouth when he started singing was, I'm rolling like a Hyundai. And eventually he got around to something Casey and I still say to each other. And he sang this in the most soulful way imaginable. It was like, if you are not willing to do anything, you have nothing. And so that was that drunk guy. <laughs> <laughs> you must act.
0: You must never uh you must never forget.
1: I mean, like, I mean there's something to, to it, but seriously, get out of here, man. Yeah, man. I'm trying to
0: have a nice time with my wife. Uh, Jesus. Uh I'm gonna mail you guys this file that shows the vote distribution. Oh, great. Tim Hoffman.